Mr. Obama goes to Jerusalem and Ramallah today, Thursday, March 21st. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. President Obama's Mideast trip got interesting today. It started with a visit to the West Bank and ended at a state dinner with the new Miss Israel. She's the first Ethiopian-born Israeli to win that title. That's great news for her community, but some say it's not enough. We want to see in every field, in every area, an Ethiopian person. And later, what do scandals involving horse meat and see-through yoga pants have in common? Problems in the global supply chain, of course. In cases like horse meat uh, or or these yoga pants, uh, things fall through the cracks. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Day two of President Obama's visit to the Middle East, and it seemed there was something for everyone. First, the president visited the West Bank, where he told Palestinians they deserved a sovereign state and an end to Israeli occupation. He also asked them to stop demanding an end to Jewish settlement activity as a precondition for peace talks. Then he returned to Israel to give the speech of his trip. Obama urged an audience of young Israeli students to recognize the right of Palestinians to have a state of their own, and he repeated his view that continued Jewish settlement building is counterproductive to peace talks. The president's speech was interrupted several times by applause, but he was heckled, too. This is part of the lively debate that we talked about. This is good. The world's Matthew Bell is in Jerusalem, and he listened to the president's speech. Matthew, uh, Obama diffusing the hecklers in the crowd there. What were your impressions of the speech? My first impression, Marco, is is mission accomplished. I think this was supposed to be the high point of President Obama's three-day trip to the Middle East. He said that he wanted to speak directly to the Israeli public, and I think he did just that. The mood in the room was very enthusiastic. The president covered a lot of ground here. He essentially retold the story of Israel. He talked about the ancient history of the Jewish people. He talked about these values here as the basis also for the alliance between Israel and the United States, especially freedom and democracy. He told Israelis, as long as there's a United States of America, and I think this is a soundbite Israelis are going to hear a lot of in the next couple of days, you are not alone, which he said in Hebrew. And then he brought up the idea of, of responsibility. Uh, here's a bit of that. And that's why I believe that Israel is rooted not just in history and tradition, but also in a simple and profound idea. The, the idea that people deserve to be free in a land of their own. And Matthew, uh, that line, people deserve to be free in a land of their own, was that a subtle reference to the Palestinians? It was. This was the turn in the speech when he started to tell the audience, listen, I'm a true friend, and, and as a true friend, I want to speak frankly with you. He talked directly about the Palestinians. He talked about settler violence. He said it's not right when that happens and it goes unpunished. He mentioned uh, movement restrictions on Palestinians in the West Bank. Here's some more of what he had to say. It's not right to prevent Palestinians from farming their lands or restricting a student's ability to move around the West Bank or displace Palestinian families from their homes. 
Neither occupation nor expulsion is the answer. One interesting thing, Marco, here is that younger generation in Israel is is actually probably more conservative, more religious, more close-minded to the idea that there is a peace that's possible uh, with Israel's neighbors. So in a sense, this was a tough message to deliver to this audience, but at least in the room, there was the heckler that that moment, which President Obama handled pretty smoothly. Mm. Uh, but in that room, and I think the initial reaction is that this speech went very well. So some warm applause from those Israeli students, a couple of hecklers as well. What happened when uh, President Obama went to Ramallah to meet Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas? This was an interesting scene to see Marine One landing at the Mokata. That's the Palestinian Authority headquarters that just a few years ago, you remember when Yasser Arafat was the Palestinian leader, that bunker was surrounded by Israeli tanks and and that part of Ramallah was essentially a war zone. This was during the Second Intifada. And here was the President of the United States with the Secretary of State getting out of the helicopter, walking on the red carpet, greeting the Palestinian president. They had their meeting. They held a short news conference. Things seemed to go well. Uh, But the truth is, Marco, among the Palestinian public, that there's just a lot more skepticism about what President Obama has the willingness to do to move the situation forward and change the reality on the ground for Palestinians. Matthew Bell, the world's Middle East correspondent, thanks. You're welcome, Marco. Israel's putting its best face forward for President Obama on this visit. And what better face to put forward than Israel's first black beauty queen? The newly crowned Miss Israel is an Ethiopian Jewish immigrant to the country. Today, she joined Obama at the official state dinner in Jerusalem. There are about 120,000 Ethiopian immigrants in Israel. Many have struggled to integrate into Israeli society. But recently, there have been a number of success stories, too, as Daniel Estrin reports. A few weeks ago, more than a quarter of all Israeli TV viewers watched the judges announce the new Miss Israel of 2013. Titi is her name, short for Yitaish Ainau. She was the only black finalist in this year's beauty pageant, and she became Israel's first black beauty queen. I met her in Tel Aviv a few days after her coronation. She's tall, commanding, and outspoken. It's time that someone from my community, someone with my skin color, who is Israeli just like everyone else, represent the country. What captivated the judges was not only her beauty, but also her life story. Born in a small town, Titi was orphaned by the time she was about 10. She moved to Israel to live with her grandparents, who had already left Ethiopia for a new life here. Titi says as an Ethiopian Jew, she grew up with stories about the land of milk and honey. But her new life in Israel wasn't all milk and honey. Titi hardly remembered her grandparents. She was sent to an Israeli boarding school without knowing a word of Hebrew. Some of her classmates made fun of her Ethiopian name, Itaish. What is Itaish? This is my name, but it sounds weird. There were times they called me Taish. In Hebrew, that's a kind of animal, you know. But she was proud of her Ethiopian heritage. And unlike many other Ethiopian Jewish immigrants who took on Hebrew names, she kept her own. She learned Hebrew fast, excelled in school, and became an army officer after graduation. And now she's been crowned Israel's most beautiful woman. Immediately after winning the competition, she was photographed for La Isha, Israel's equivalent of Vogue. She's only the second black Israeli to appear on the cover. That's why I feel that I made history, that I blazed a trail. An Ethiopian woman is on the cover of the magazine. 
Ethiopian Jews are said to be the fabled descendants of the Israelite tribe of Dan. Many of them arrived from poor villages, having never seen refrigerators or telephones. They're still struggling to integrate, and many say they face deep-seated racism. Titi's win as Miss Israel is a symbolic step toward more acceptance, says pageant director Iris Cohen. When you stand off this stage, and when you are representing Israel if you win, this is a stamp of legitimacy for being a citizen of Israel and mean that beyond all the difficulty to come to a different country, different language, uh, a little racism, which is all over the world, it's hard to become equal citizen. And I think that if you are a beauty queen, it does mean something. Here's another sampling of Ethiopian-Israeli culture that President Obama has tasted on his trip here. Yesterday, at dinner with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Obama was serenaded with this song. It's a hit by Idan Reichel, an Israeli pop singer who infuses his tunes with Ethiopian chanting and Amharic. Reichel performed along with Ethiopian-Israeli singer Kabra Kasai. It's been a pioneering couple of years for Ethiopian-born Israelis. In 2011, the Israeli version of American Idol had its first Ethiopian-born winner, Chagit Yasso. Last year, Israel appointed its first Ethiopian-born ambassador. And this year, Israel elected its first Ethiopian-born woman to parliament. The new Miss Israel sets yet another milestone for the Ethiopian-Israeli community. The fact that Israel is showing her off to President Obama is nothing to be cynical about, says Ethiopian-Israeli Orit Issachar. She's with the Israeli Association for Ethiopian Jews. Israel is really trying to show the Ethiopian faces that are uh, part of the Israel society. So it's really important, but it's not enough. We want to see a new people, a new Ethiopians people leading in industry, uh, in academic field. I want to see TV anchors and commentators. We want to see in every field an Ethiopian person. Maybe one day a U.S. president will come to Israel and meet a black head of state. Hey, it happened in America. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Check out our slideshow about Israel's first Ethiopian-born beauty queen at theworld.org. At first, the headline doesn't sound too shocking. Saudi Arabia says it's uncovered a spy network. The Saudis are known for being extra sensitive about outside interferences, but this alleged spy cell is different. Of the 18 people arrested, one is an Iranian citizen, another is Lebanese, and the rest are members of Saudi Arabia's Shiite minority. And today, a spokesman for the Saudi Interior Ministry said they were all working for Iran. Saudi journalist Ahmed al-Omran is covering the intrigue on his blog, Riyadh Bureau. He says the decision to point a finger at Iran was unexpected. This was quite unusual because in previous instances, the Saudi government stopped short of naming Iran as the foreign country that is interfering with Saudi affairs. But in this case, actually, the Saudi government went and called out Iran by name. So what more has been revealed about this alleged spy network? Well, Saudi newspapers say that, you know, these 16 Shia Saudi citizens were working in different regions of the country to provide information to Iranian intelligence agencies and collect information about important locations, about health situation of members of the royal family and other security information. So far, 
the government only released this brief statement, and most of this is based on unnamed sources in the local media, while most of the Shia leaders and the Shia community seem to reject the accusations because they say that these people who were arrested are not people known for their political activism. Mm. Most of them are either religious figures like clerics or they are professionals and academics. So as one Shia leader described this, he said this is very strange because these people are not all known as politically active. Step back from your perch uh, in Saudi Arabia for a moment. What, what are other regional considerations that make this espionage charge at all credible for you? Well, Saudi Arabia and Iran has been locked up in a power struggle in the Middle East for many years now. And with the situation in Syria is keep escalating, you know, the sectarian tension in the region is also escalating. And such accusations between the two countries should not be very surprising. There must be concern that these arrests are going to set back efforts to gain equal rights in Saudi Arabia. There is a lot of debate in in social media, at least, about these arrests and what they mean. And government supporters agree with the government that Iran is targeting the Saudi Arabia and it's using the Shia minority in the country to destabilize the country. On the other hand, government critics allege that the government is using the Shia minority as as a scapegoat in order to distract from other concerns such as the calls for political reform and the cases of political prisoners that have been really hot in, in recent months in the country. So there is even an internal debate about it in Saudi. And what is the penalty for espionage in Saudi Arabia? I mean, there is no penal code, so it's hard to say what kind of punishment they will get. It will be down to the judge's interpretation and then to decide. Members of the Saudi Shura Council in the, in the local media today were asking for the most severe punishment for what they consider is a major treason that these people should be punished for. Saudi journalist Ahmed Al-Omran, who blogs at Riyadh Bureau, thanks very much. Thank you, Marco. Still to come, the unprecedented trial and drama in Guatemala. You're listening to The World on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. It's been just over two years since the revolution that toppled Egypt's longtime dictator, Hosni Mubarak. The transition to democracy has been anything but smooth, and that's affecting the country's economy in drastic ways. Local businesses are feeling the pinch, especially those located near Cairo's Tahrir Square. Shop owners there say being so close to the action has stalled their income. Carmel Delshad sent us this report from Cairo. Just down the road from Tahrir Square is Gallery Paris, an aging antique store that has seen the best and the worst of Egypt's 2011 revolution. Hassem Zenhom is the store's 28-year-old owner. Under a dozen glittering chandeliers, Zenhom recalls the heady days of the uprising. Business is bad, Zenhom says. Egypt's economy is in shambles, and his former clients simply can't spend on things like antiques, even though middle-class and upper-middle-class customers were the norm. The lack of business isn't only affecting Zenhom. Many of his neighbors make the same claims. 
Catchy Air pop tunes float in the air just outside of Mohammed Lutfi Ahmed's tiny CD and DVD store, right next to Gallery Paris. Ahmed says even a business like his, that caters to young people, is getting hammered. The problem, the men say, is that even if people did have money, they're too afraid to go downtown. Since the uprising, there's been an uptick in violent protests and sexual assaults, especially in downtown Cairo. On any given weekend, there are protests about something. The threat of violence and the declining income of the middle class is proving to be a deadly mix for businesses and the Egyptian economy as a whole. Mohammed Youssef is the director of the Egyptian Businessmen's Association. The Egyptian economy in general are so sensitive those days by day-to-day events that happen. Youssef says Egypt is in a dark tunnel thanks to political insecurity. But he says businessmen like Zenhom need to hang on because the country will bounce back. Despite all bad things that we have, despite all the, the black points that we have, despite the dark tunnels that we are in, Egypt have the ability and the capability to grow rapidly once there is a sort of stability and if there is a will. But Zenhom says he can't wait that long. He's spending about $2,000 a month, and he still hasn't sold anything in over two years. Zenhom thinks the current government under President Mohamed Morsi should step in and do more for its people, many of whom are still waiting in long lines for government-subsidized bread. Morsi should stand by his people to put us on the first step to recovery. We don't need any more than this. He warns that with a hungry people and businesses like his on the decline, another revolution might be on its way. For the world, I'm Carmel Dalshad in Cairo, Egypt. Get a first-hand look at what it takes for a business to survive in post-revolution Egypt. We have a video featuring a shop owner from Cairo at theworld.org. Now, compared to Egypt's economic problems, you could call this next story a case of first-world problems. Exhibit A. I'm concerned about your aura. You know, carrot sticks are nature's candy. I drank way too much kombucha last night. And apples are actually nature's toothbrush. How do you say that in Sanskrit? I need a coconut water. I hear Lady Gaga loves yoga. Let's go to the farmer's market after class. Namaste. 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 And that's from a video for the Canadian yoga gear company Lululemon. The company needs all the deep breaths it can get this week as it recalls all those trendy yoga pants that turned out to show a little too much during Downward Dog. Lululemon blames its problem with see-through yoga pants on its Taiwan-based fabric supplier. That's not too different from what led to the furniture giant IKEA's problem with its signature meatballs, which, you'll recall, turned out to contain horse meat. The complex global supply chain lends itself to these predicaments. Parag Khanna is a senior research fellow at the New America Foundation. He co-wrote an article on Quartz.com about the complicated steps involved in making the products we love so much. Blaming a supply chain is like blaming globalization. It's like blaming life. Uh, you know, you can't really do that. This is this is the 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 result of what we've become in a way through all of this specialization. Um, you know, we wouldn't have uh, most of the things that we enjoy were it not for supply chains. The recent data suggests that there are more intermediate transactions involved in producing our day-to-day goods and services than ever before. So that's a complicated way of saying that uh, whether it is bottled water or an, or an iPhone, uh, the number of, uh, of uh, exchanges of hands of specific components of products of, of sales from a vendor to a supplier to another supplier to the point at which it's assembled to the point at which it's delivered and sold, 
the number of those transactions is larger than it's ever been for a very wide range of products. Well, I can see why you're saying that blaming the supply chain is kind of like blaming globalization. But where does quality control come into the manufacturing picture here? I mean, I I remember, you know, buying the last pair of uh, trousers I bought. There was a little tag inside inspected by operator, you know, 32. Exactly. And you probably don't know Operator 32 of which factory. It wasn't necessarily a factory that had the name Levi's on it, right? It was a factory that is of a, you know, a Chinese or, a, or a, somewhere in Thailand, you know, a company whose name you've never heard of. And this is where uh, the question you're asking is really about accountability, right? Where does mm. the buck stop? And there are many ways to attempt to implement this. There are uh, government regulators that are supposed to be enforcing uh, labor standards to which their governments have subscribed, quality standards for the production of products and labor standards within factories and so forth. Um, then there are uh, customs uh, channels. When, when these goods cross borders, they're supposed to be examined for contamination and so forth. So we have the cases, of course, of Chinese, uh, you know, tainted baby formula or of, uh, you know, toys that can strangle you, you know, so so these things are supposed to be checked as well. And then there's also companies themselves that are supposed to be enforcing standards through their supply chains and, and vetting and doing spot checks on their contractors. Then there's market accountability, you know, customers who notice defects and those lead to recalls. And that obviously hurts the bottom line of companies. So this is not a situation that any company wants to be in, of course. In cases like horse meat uh, or, or these yoga pants, uh, um, you know, things slip, fall through the cracks. You know, something you said there struck me that, you know, we've heard so much about how new technologies can identify everything in the supply chain, how they've made everything so efficient, how a company like H&M can design an outfit and have it on the retail racks a month later. And yet these horse meat scandals happen. These see-through yoga pants get made. Are the technologies not doing what they're supposed to? Technology can be very important because you can actually monitor, of course, uh, you know, the, the conditions in factories, the ingredients in materials. You can test samples more quickly. So there's a variety of, sort of sensor technologies, let's say, that can be very important in, in making sure that standards are maintained in supply chains. But, but just bear in mind, you know, making an iPhone is more complicated than knitting a dress. Parag Khanna, a senior research fellow at the New America Foundation, speaking with us from Singapore. You can find a link to his article on the subject at theworld.org. Parag, thank you. Thank you so much. And before we take a break, here's another supply chain issue to consider. It involves a popular South African variety of beef jerky. We want you to name that snack for today's GeoQuiz. It's made with spicy strips of meat trimmed to fat, sliced into thin strips, and then dried. A South African food scientist recently turned a microscope on this beef snack, and what she found is not pretty. We'll hear a lot more about that a bit later in the program. This is The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, one U.S. veteran turns to writing for help dealing with the trauma of war, while another vet is told to try yoga. I thought it was a joke, and I remembered actually laughing out loud. And he says, no, no, really, we're not kidding. You're going to be going to yoga. I just thought of myself in tights and, you know, with a bunch of women. It was such an alien concept to me. 
NPRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. All this week, we've been looking back at the decade of war that began with the invasion of Iraq. Many of the men and women who served in Iraq and Afghanistan carried it home with them. An estimated 10 to 20 percent suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Veteran Ron Capps turned to his keyboard for help. He's been writing out his memories of war, and now he's helping fellow veterans write theirs. The world's Nina Porzuki has his story. Nearly a decade ago, Ron Capps found himself sitting in his truck in the desert in Darfur with a pistol in his hand, contemplating taking his own life. He had spent the previous decade in the U.S. military and then foreign service, jumping from one conflict to the next. It went from... Uh, Rwanda to Kosovo to Afghanistan to Iraq and then to Darfur. And I came away from that pretty badly traumatized. A phone call from his wife jolted him out of the moment. He left Darfur, but it was a long time before Cap sought treatment. Culture in the military is very much one of the phrase you hear people use is embrace the suck. You know, this place we're living really sucks. This job really sucks. It's very hard. It's you know, it's hot or it's cold or it's wet or it's miserable. And people say all the time, embrace the suck, just deal with it. Issues of mental health, uh, particularly post-traumatic stress disorder and depression, these are considered weaknesses in the military. So Caps embraced the suck and internalized what he witnessed during his decade at war. The one place he was able to let out some of his stories was, ironically, part of his job. As a foreign service officer, he wrote reports for the State Department on what he witnessed. But then he began to write two versions. I would write the one report back to the State Department or back to the Pentagon that said, here's what happened. These are the facts that I know. And then he would write out a personal account for himself, the details left out of the official report, the details that haunted him at night. One event really stands out in Kosovo. We went to investigate an attack on a village by Serbian paramilitaries and by the Serbian police, where the police fired mortars and used automatic weapons against women and children. And one of the children was missing, one of the bodies was missing, and we determined that, and I'm sorry this is kind of gruesome, but the dogs had eaten the body. And I didn't bother putting that into a government report because it wasn't in many ways relevant to what we knew had happened. But when I've written about that story in an essay that's called Yellow, that fact has to be in there because it really is relevant to what did happen on the ground. The government reporting went away. The essays are now the way that I'm documenting what I did, what I saw, what I witnessed. Capps credits these alternate writings as the bomb that he needed. One of the things that I was trying to accomplish was, you know, to get control of my own story, that now I own the story, the story no longer controls me. I'm in charge of it. Capps retired from government service after 25 years and went back to graduate school to get his MFA in creative writing. One night I was on my way home and I decided I really wanted to do something to help others. So he created the Veterans Writing Project and started leading workshops with veterans across the country. With memory, your brain wants to recreate the same set of sequences, you know, the same synapses firing and the same release of chemicals. And so, you know, this is a flashback. 
this is a very bad thing, you know. By introducing writing, by introducing music, art, dance, theater, the, the memory stops controlling you at that point. You can take control of the memory. He also helped launch a program at the Walter Reed Hospital in Bethesda. Each Wednesday, CAPS meets with service members recovering from PTSD and traumatic brain injury. Yes, the writing is therapeutic, he says, but... We make very clear that we're not therapists. You know, we say this over and over again. If you need help, go get it. We will be here when you get back. This is a writing program. And ultimately, when CAPS thinks about this last decade worth of war, it's the writing and not the trauma he hopes will be the legacy. I think we are going to see a new wave of great American writing come out of this generation of veterans. And so I'm very much looking forward to it. And, you know, we're trying to help. For the world, I'm Nina Porzuki. There are a whole host of programs these days geared toward helping vets deal with their experiences. One of the more unusual, at least for vets, is yoga. It's not the first thing that springs to mind when thinking about treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. But from the Veterans Administration to the Pentagon, yoga classes are becoming not just commonplace, but mandatory. Susan Kaplan has this report. Newington, Connecticut is really quiet on a Sunday morning, except in the crammed lobby of the Newington Yoga Center, where about 20 veterans train to become yoga teachers. Suzanne Manafort of the Veterans Yoga Project says what began as a small project has burgeoned into programs across the country. Manafort taught yoga for years before using it as a treatment for PTSD. She says she had no idea she might need to make adjustments to her teaching until she made mistakes. Touching is a mistake. You know, in yoga classes we touch all the time, but to somebody who's been sexually assaulted, that's a huge violation. Um, Walking behind them is a huge mistake because it feels like they have to pay attention to what's going on in the room instead of allowing them to just practice their yoga practice. She says ultimately it was veterans themselves that guided her, in some cases just by the courage it took simply to stay in class. Some of the men uh, and women that I work with are Vietnam veterans, so they've been at home suffering for 40 years. And then when they come into this treatment program and they're told they have to do yoga, you're like, are you kidding me? And I thought it was a joke, and I remembered actually laughing out loud. And they said, no, no, really, we're not kidding. You're going to be going to yoga. Vietnam veteran Paul Grzywinski is training to teach yoga to veterans. Many years after returning from the war, PTSD hit him hard. He ended up turning to the VA, where he first encountered yoga. And I just thought of myself in tights and, you know, with a bunch of women. And I know that sounds sexist, and, I, and I'm not, so forgive me, but... It was so, it was such an alien concept to me. And Grzywinski's early misperceptions are one reason Dan Libby, a co-founder of the Veterans Yoga Project, says the 12-week yoga training for treating vets with PTSD tries to strip all the new agey stuff out. We really emphasize that is leave all the Sanskrit names at home, right? Leave the candles at home. Don't talk about, you know, moonbeams and, you know, chakras and all these things. It's really just about learning about your body and your experience. Right? It's learning how to breathe. I am Lieutenant Colonel Melinda Morgan. I am active duty. I am stationed in the Pentagon as part of the um, Office of the Secretary of Defense Press Operations. Lieutenant Morgan deployed right after 9-11 and started teaching yoga to those who had served and those who were preparing to go to Afghanistan. So I started teaching veterans 10 years ago. And one of those veterans that I taught became an instructor himself. And so in 2007, when he was in Iraq and I was in another location, 
he writes me a note. He goes, Colonel Morgan, I have to teach yoga, and I don't think I can. I'm like, oh, yes, you can. So I, sh- I wrote it down, all of the, the poses, emailed it to him, and helped him on his way to become a certified teacher. Today, Morgan teaches at the Pentagon, and she says classes once sparsely attended are now full every day. But despite an increased demand for yoga, paired with a growing number of alternative treatment programs in the military and the VA, there's scant hard science about why yoga or most of the other alternative programs work. Yoga instructor Dan Libby hopes the government does some studies soon, because without more data, returning troops won't take the programs seriously. For The World, I'm Susan Kaplan. Former Guatemalan dictator Efrain Rios Montt was in court this morning for the second day of his genocide trial. It was pretty extraordinary. The retired general listened as a dozen witnesses described atrocities under his regime, how the Guatemalan army swept through their villages in the early 1980s, killing their family members and burning villages. The trial marks the first genocide proceedings against a former head of state ever held in a domestic court. Kate Doyle directs the Guatemala Documentation Project for the National Security Archive in Washington. She says the fact that the trial is even taking place is a tribute to the tenacity of Guatemala's indigenous communities. Marco, it's astonishing to watch people who have been carrying around these stories. And I'm talking about members of the Ishil community from the Quiche, one of the departments in Guatemala hardest hit by the massacres in the 1980s, watching them finally getting to sit down and tell a panel of Guatemalan judges exactly what happened. Precisely. I mean, Guatemala is not a place we think of as having a strong judiciary or a military willing to prosecute its own people. What got Guatemala to this point? People have been not simply carrying around the experience of surviving this or having lost family members, but pushing for change, demanding justice. And I think when you look at Guatemala and you you, you ask, how could this happen in a country that seems from afar so broken in so many ways, so violent, still wrestling with sort of fundamental issues about how to create democracy and democratic institutions? You have to look at this extraordinary collective effort on the part of the Mayan people, on the part of a whole bunch of sectors in Guatemala that were affected by the violence throughout the years and have pushed for change ever since. That's Mm. how we got here. Many people say that one real mover and shaker behind this trial is Guatemala's Attorney General, Claudio Paz y Paz. Who is she and why does she have the clout to take on these very powerful entrenched interests? Claudia Pasipas is, was, and will continue to be after she steps down eventually uh, as attorney general, a scholar, uh, a scholar of uh, judicial studies, a lawyer. She wrote her PhD thesis on genocide when she studied in Spain. On the one hand, Claudia Paz has been an extraordinary crusading attorney general. She's also fought against the narco-trafficking in her country. She's fought against common crime in her country. She has swept her own institution, the public ministry, clean of corruption. She's done evaluations and fired hundreds of prosecutors. I mean, she's really quite an extraordinary force for change. She Uh, sounds extremely brave, given all the forces she's gone up against that you just mentioned. And she is brave, because in Guatemala, there's no doubt that those who take on the vested interests, whether they be people who are associated with the military in those terrible years, or people associated with organized crime, 
you will be the target of threats and sometimes violent acts. So she is a brave woman. I saw this pretty astounding photo today in a slideshow that uh, that I've tweeted and which we'll link to at theworld.org. The picture shows this massive red and black banner draped over Guatemala's Supreme Court building, and it reads, Never Again, Rivers of Blood. And this is in a country where a former army chief who served under Rios Montt is now president. So does that mean that it's okay now to publicly point a finger at the military in Guatemala? For several years now, we have seen kind of the mounting capacity on the part of the justice system, on the one hand, to prosecute human rights violators, but also a growing willingness on the part of society as a whole, whether you're talking about the press, whether you're talking about activists, whether you're talking about scholars or, again, survivors, to talk directly and openly about what happened and demand change. Kate Doyle directs the Guatemala Documentation Project for the National Security Archive. She's following the genocide trial of Guatemala's former president, Efrain Rios Montt. You can probably come up with a long list of snack foods you've sampled at one time or another, but in our GeoQuiz, we ask for the name of just one. It's a South African version of beef jerky. Spicy strips of meat called biltong come in a variety of flavors. The affordable snack is sold at street markets and food stands. So biltong is the answer to today's GeoQuiz. And recently, a food scientist turned her microscope on this popular snack. Biltong is, is something that is very similar to the jerky that you find in the United States. It's simply a dried meat prepared with spices and vinegar and dried and eaten as a snack. Maria Eugenia D'Amato is a geneticist at the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. She tested hundreds of samples of biltong, which can be made from the meat of many different animals. The most popular biltong found in Southern Africa is, is that of ostrich, or the most common antelopes here, like kudu, hemsworth, springbok, impala. What she found with her microscope is not pretty. It's not the long list of artificial dyes and preservatives that's the problem. It's that many of the snacks are blatantly mislabeled, says D'Amato. One piece of kudu, labeled kudu, biltong, was actually giraffe. I found another piece of that labeled springbok biltong, which is a small a small gazelle. It was horse. How giraffe and horse meat got into biltong labeled as gazelle or antelope is still a mystery. Here's another one. It was also shocking to find a kangaroo in some dry sausages. That means that this meat is being imported because there's no kangaroos in, in Africa, in the whole continent. It must be imported from Australia. And I found kangaroo meat mixed with other species in dry sausages. D'Amato says she was also rattled to discover traces of Cape Mountain zebra in Biltong. That's an endangered species. In all, more than 100 of the 150 samples she tested were mislabeled. It all makes D'Amato think twice about snacking on Biltong. I'm concerned. I'm certainly concerned. I don't mind if the problem is substituting one species by another. For instance, if I intend to buy kudu and I find that it is in color, that's not a real problem. But being a biologist, I'm extremely concerned about the delivery of endangered species into the market because of lack of control. D'Amato published her findings in the journal Investigative Genetics. The South Africa Health Ministry is now investigating the mislabeling of biltong, and a report is expected in a few months. This is PRI. 
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Here's something I just learned. Today is World Poetry Day. So says the United Nations Cultural Agency, UNESCO. It has a list of well-known poets to celebrate on this date. People like William Butler Yeats, Pablo Neruda, Aimé César, but also some lesser-known ones like Constantine Cavafy from Greece. Don Cher is a poet translator and the senior editor of Poetry Magazine. He says Cavafy was a late bloomer, but still made his mark. Constantine Cavafy lived from the late 19th century till about 1933. He was a Greek poet, but he lived in Alexandria, and he worked there as a, a writer and a civil servant. And he only published about 154 poems. He turns out to be a very influential poet who really was a kind of witness to all the things that were going on around him in Greece. Mm. I mean, you describe him as kind of an average guy with a job, but I mean, ultimately, isn't that what most poets have to be? I mean, you can't really be uh, like a professional poet anymore. <laughs> That's largely true. That's right. <laughs> what is the experience of translating poetry like for you? I mean, and, and what languages do you translate? Well, mostly I concentrate on uh, Spanish poetry, and uh, I've recently translated the work of the Spanish poet Miguel Hernandez, who was around during the Spanish Civil War in the 20th century and perished in it. What's in it for me is the human element. So these moments of recognition, when you are confronted with someone who is very different from you, you realize that you can find a bond, something in common, something about having to eat and struggle and survive. Maybe you can take us out with uh, another poet that you'd really like to kind of highlight today. Well, I'll read a few lines from the Hernandez since we were talking That'd about be great, it. Yeah. He was writing at a time when there was war, and the result of war was that people began to starve. Now, this is something that unfortunately happens at any given time in many places around the world. is happening as we speak. So these are just a few lines from a poem of his about hunger. Hunger is the most important thing to know. To be hungry is the first lesson we learn. And the ferocity of what you feel there where the stomach begins sets you on fire. And then he talks about how we can become almost like animals because we have to eat. But at the end of the poem, what he says is, don't let me be a beast, starving, enraged, forever corner, a common animal with working blood. I give you the humanity that this song foretells. So he's sort of predicting a world where people can be human instead of act like animals. Don Cher is a poet and is a senior editor of Poetry Magazine. Don, happy World Poetry Day. A happy World Poetry to you and all our listeners. Finally today, South African band Freshly Ground is touring the United States right now. They're playing in northern Virginia tonight. The music and lyrics of Freshly Ground sometimes blend together into a strong political statement. Sometimes they merge into exciting dance tracks. The band's new album, Take Me to the Dance, has both. Two from the band came to visit us recently, lead singer Zolani Mahola and bass player Josh Hawks. We're musical political as opposed to political musical. But we are affected by what goes on around us. And um, in the last 200 years, 12 civil wars and apartheid. So we're still trying to find our feet. But so is the world, it seems. What do you think is going on? I mean, just to talk about South Africa right now, because we heard about the, the, the terrible miners' strike and, and what ensued, the violence that ensued there. Uh, obviously, Oscar Pistorius now big in the news, which isn't really a kind of part of the narrative of, of the Rainbow Nation, but it, it's violence. I mean, w what do you see happening in South well, Africa right now? We, we have a violent history. 
um, and with the workers on strike and the labor unrest in the wine lands, it's, it's three centuries of commodified black labor coming to the fore. Zelani, for you, though, when you, when you have all this going on in the background, how does it inform you as an artist, as a musician, as a singer? It's all the stuff that's there. I'm not really the kind of um, lyricist who, who plans to write about a particular topic. You know, it's kind of just whatever comes out from what I've experienced and what I've kind of drawn in my head. We, we actually reported on a song that Freshly Ground recorded a couple of years ago, and I would like to play that back and just ask you about it because I, I did find it really provocative and, and really a great tune. So let's hear it. It's called Chicken to Change. I song's about Robert Mugabe, who's not the president of South Africa. He's the president of your neighbor, Zimbabwe. Uh, you sing, I remember a time when you were noble, conqueror, a supernova. But then the chorus goes, uh, but you're chicken to change. You're chicken to change. What led to this song? So, like, when you sat down to write it, you were thinking Robert Mugabe, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. We had been going to Zimbabwe for, for a number of years, and it's been very obvious to see the degradation and, and seeing how how bad it is, how bad the situation is, and just how, how, how fearful people had, had become more and more um, under the government of Mugabe. And so we wrote the song. It, it was a controversial song, obviously, a polarizing figure, Robert Mugabe. Um, although on this new album, you're not kind of shying away from political social issues. But I'm wondering if that experience with Chicken to Change kind of showed you kind of the limits of politicizing in music. Um, I don't know. I don't, we've never really had a plan. You know, we just do what whatever comes. Um, we've tried. We've tried a lot of things, we, but but mostly we just we do what comes. The basis of the music is pretty fundamental. You take South African indigenous rhythms like kwaito and kwela and, uh, and kind of fuse it with blues, a little jazz, some indie rock. That seems to be kind of a tight frame. So when you record a new album like this one, Take Me to the Dance, do you have kind of a, a thought in your head about how you're going to be? different how you're going to create a new iteration of this music um traditionally no this last album though came at the end of a decade of being together and at the end of that decade we were we were fatigued so at the end of that year one of the members in our band uh, kind of put out a challenge to write something individually which is not really normally the way that we would work and at the beginning of the next year we listened to all those ideas and we decided which ones were the best and we worked from there that's kind of a fresh approach. It was a very fresh approach for for us, mm. definitely. So it's um it's it's made the sound of the album very very quite radically different. That was Zolani Mahola, lead singer of South Africa's Freshly Ground. We also heard from the band's bass player Josh Hawks. You can watch two exclusive videos of Freshly Ground produced by the world's video team. One of the band at a recent gig in Boston playing and talking about their musical influences. The other features Zolani Mahola talking about Freshly Ground's latest album. See both videos at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.